uh, as you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Philemon. It's a tiny little book, uh, one page in many Bibles. It is in my Bible, and uh, it is after First uh, and Second Thessalonians. Then you get to the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. Following Titus is Philemon. You can skip right past it, so slow down and watch out for it. Now, um, I'm going to answer the elephant in the room. Uh, right now, really quickly, uh, why am I sitting up here at a table? Is this new? Is this going to be the way you preach from now on? I'm not sure. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, no, the honest answer is this. Well, we, we really felt like we need to get back to our historic Christian roots. You know, in the ancient world, specifically um, in rabbinic literature and tradition, um, the rabbi, the teacher, sat to teach and everybody stood to listen. So I'm going to invite you now to stand. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm kidding. I'm not going to make you do that. I have a physical ailment right now. I got an issue with my foot, and uh, I need to keep um, pressure and weight off of it. Um, I've been in a lot of pain, so this is going to be hopefully helpful for me. And uh, you know, it's, in one sense, though, it's fitting. I think you know, this morning on a long weekend, um, it's a quieter morning. It's a bit of a softer morning. We have a stripped down a worship set. You'll notice that up there, an acoustic set. Uh, it's a quieter, softer feel, and it's fitting because of the nature of our text this morning. Um, and this wasn't planned that way. It's just kind of, I'm just kind of ad-libbing, so go, bear with me. But I do think it is fitting. You see, that the main point of the book of Philemon is forgiveness. And it's a topic that needs to be dealt with, with um, the utmost care and compassion and kindness. Um, and in fact, as we look at this letter this morning, as the Apostle Paul writes this letter, that's one of the hallmarks of this letter. He, he writes in such a unique way, such a winsome way, such a careful way, such a, a persuasive way um, that demonstrates a real heart of love and grace um, as he communicates some really profound truth. Um, I want to jump into it with you in just a moment, but we are uh, this morning beginning a summer series um, that I just want to introduce to you briefly. We've, uh, we've called it Postcard Prophets in Epistles. And, and just the basic idea of this series is nothing, nothing crazy, nothing too unique. We're just going to look throughout the summer at um, what, what we can call postcard prophets or epistles. That's just simply saying that they are small enough to fit on the back of a postcard. And what our goal is going to be is to simply look at these prophets and epistles. We're going to go back and forth, an epistle or a letter from the New Testament, and then a prophet. Um, obviously, they're going to be minor prophets, as they're referred to. And uh, we're just going to simply look at them at a, at a higher level. And um, we're going to dive in for sure, but the basic goal is going to be to look at these um, epistles or prophets in one message or possibly two depending on the nature of the content that we're getting into. And this morning, we're going to go to the first of two messages in the book of Philemon. And, uh, and it's incredibly important as we think about the topic of forgiveness and really understanding a heart of forgiveness. How many people do you know, or maybe this is even relevant to you, um, refuse to open up and risk entering into um, important, in-depth, and intimate relationships because they're so fearful of being hurt? Maybe they're, they're fearful of being hurt again. In, in other words, they took that risk before, and what they've experienced in relationships is, is deep emotional, a relational woundedness and hurt. A fear of entering into relationships because of a fear of being hurt is, is commonplace in our culture. It's commonplace in humanity, and it very much reveals a fear of taking a risk in relationship, but oftentimes it demonstrates also, listen, oftentimes an unwillingness to forgive. 
The fear of risking that relationship is the result, in other words, of an unwillingness to forgive the hurt of a prior relationship, an inability to move past that hurt, to experience true healing from that hurt, from that woundedness. And so every relationship is looked at as a potential uh, for hurting again, for wounding again. And it's a risk that so many people are unwilling to take. Many of us, however, have been hurt in relationships, and we understand that this is par for the course. Any true relationship, any in-depth relationship, is going to come with a degree of hurt. We are going to, by nature, because of our sinful nature, hurt one another. It happens in every relationship. And so many of us have said, yeah, I'm prepared for that. I've been there. I've done that. But I want to say, too, that many are unprepared. While they're prepared, listen, for the hurt to happen, they're actually unprepared for the forgiveness that is necessary to maintain that relationship. How many times have you said, maybe in your relationship with your spouse or with people who are close to you, or maybe you've just heard this from others, I'm, I'm simply not ready to forgive you. I'm not there yet. I just can't forgive you yet. As a result of statements like that, we have countless people who are living in hurt, living in anger, and cultivating deep-seated bitterness in their lives, which has, by the way, a damaging effect. It has a damaging effect personally, emotionally, spiritually, even physically. The, the Mayo Clinic acknowledges, uh, medically speaking, that so many physical ailments are the result of bitterness within an, own, an individual's life. It certainly has an effect relationally, not only in the relationship where the hurt is taking place, but as we've already noted, in ongoing relationships and on the potential for future relationships. Now, forgiveness can be hard, there's no doubt about it. Forgiveness is so often hard, it is costly, it is painful, it is difficult, there is no doubt about it, but make no mistake about it, forgiveness is freeing. Forgiveness is life-giving. Forgiveness is necessary for enjoying life and relationships on this earth. So here's the question, how do we get prepared to forgive? Some of you need to be prepared and need to be getting ready to forgive even this day. But how do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, particularly in the unique relationships that God has given us in the body of Christ, how do we prepare our hearts to be in a position to be ready to forgive at any given moment, at any moment of offense? You can see how practical this is in the context of the body of Christ, in the context of the relationships that we have here, and in the context of your everyday relationships. How do we begin moving towards restoration in relationships? It begins with a heart that is ready to forgive. And Paul addresses just that, that preparation, the, the tilling of the soil of the heart that gets us ready to forgive in the first seven verses of Philemon. Now, I want to begin by reading the entire book and uh, to really just put it before us. So let's read this together. Paul uh, is writing this letter to this man Philemon. In verse 1, he says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. 
And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from you, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Just really quickly here, um, to give you a sense of what's taking place, I think you, you get that this letter now is all about forgiveness. You see that it is about relational forgiveness in the context of the local church. Paul is writing here, and he's writing as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's on house arrest right now for the sake of the gospel. And he's writing to a friend, a personal friend. And he's also writing to a man who is a church leader, and his name is Philemon. Philemon is, is clearly a personal friend of the Apostle Paul. He writes to him. You can just see the language here. He appeals to him as a brother. There's a friendship that's taking place. I mean, not many people get a personal letter from the Apostle Paul. That's a big deal. This man is, is also very clearly a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. He's a man in a position of authority. He has some kind of maybe elder responsibility. He is a very clear leader. He's very influential. Not only that, the church meets in his own house. It's likely, therefore, that he's also very wealthy, and we know that as well because of the fact that he owns bondservants, servants, like Onesimus, the man being referred to here. He's respected. He's influential. He's a man of God. He loves the Lord. And Paul is now writing to this man to help restore a broken, a fractured relationship between this man Philemon and this man Onesimus, who was his bond servant, who was his slave of sorts. Now, um, when you think of slavery and you think of the ancient world, you have to put out of your mind this idea of North American slavery. That is not what we're talking about. This is indentured servitude. <clears throat> this is a large portion of the Roman world 
Um, some estimate upwards of 80% of the Roman population were considered indentured servants. It was more like an employee-employer relationship, but make no mistake about it, there was some kind of an, a contractual obligation in this relationship. This man had forfeited, Onesimus, this contractual obligation. He'd run away, and he had also damaged the relationship, it looks like, by stealing from Philemon. Now, he had done this before he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And somewhere down the line, he had run maybe into the Apostle Paul himself and had given his life to Jesus Christ, and now he was a new man. He was a new creation. Paul knows that this brother in Christ has done something wrong, And he knows that there's an offense against Philemon, and he knows that he now is obligated to help restore this broken relationship, and that's exactly what he's doing in this letter. Paul wants this relationship mended and restored. He wants repentance and forgiveness and grace to prevail. And the letter to Philemon is, uh, by all accounts, one of the most brilliantly nuanced and compelling letters of reconciliation in the ancient world. It is so beautifully and graciously written. The communication here is not, as Paul even says, a command but an appeal from brotherly love. It is a model of grace and charm. And this little postcard epistle gives us the key in many ways to restoring and maintaining relationships, especially in the body of Christ. And so this morning from this Postcard epistle, I want to give you and me three truths that keep us ready to forgive or prepare our hearts to forgive, and maybe even this morning we'll compel you to go and forgive. Three truths. The first one is this, our identity shapes our responsibility. Our identity shapes our responsibility. Now, and we see this in the first couple of verses, and you have to just pause for a minute. There's so much here that we can so quickly read past and read over and miss the significance of what the Apostle Paul is doing. He is so carefully communicating with small nuances in his writing. Paul begins in the first couple of verses to demonstrate not only his identity, but the identity of followers of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, this is not the normal way Paul introduces his letters. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul's writing, how does he typically introduce himself? Paul the what? Apostle. That that apostle title is a title of God-given authority, isn't it? It's a way in which Paul establishes his authority and then calls those recipients into a place of submission. It's a call demonstrating that they are required to listen. Now, it is intentional here that Paul does not use that title, and instead, he uses this title, a prisoner of the Lord. He is identifying himself in a very unique way. He's saying, Philemon, hey, remember where I am and remember why I am. (laughs) I am a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he is identifying this title, a prisoner, listen, with the cost of discipleship in his own personal life. Now, that is a compelling way to start this letter. He is saying, listen, Philemon, I know what it is to experience cost in the Christian life. I know what it is, Philemon, to have to give things up. I know what it is, Philemon, to be offended, even for the sake of Christ, And you have to see this setting the stage for forgiveness. Because listen, if you know anything about forgiveness, you know that forgiveness is a costly thing. 
Forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is often painful. Paul is identifying with this already. But then he begins to identify some different categories. And we understand this. We know how our identity speaks so much to not only who we are, but what we ought to do, right? We, we know this. I know this as a dad, as a husband, and a father. Those titles, those categories, they also help me understand my responsibilities, what I'm required to do as a protector, uh, as a supporter, as an encourager, as a leader. Those titles come with unique responsibilities. Uh, your job title, for example, uh, your title as a, a mother, uh, it, it comes with unique responsibilities that are given to you by God. We actually saw this concept last week when we looked at the metaphors that the Apostle Paul gives for the church. The metaphors don't just describe who we are, they describe how we're supposed to behave in the context of the church. And so Paul here appeals to Christian identity, which every one of us can relate to. In his greeting, again, just keep this in mind, he's tilling the soil of Philemon's heart. He's cultivating the heart of Philemon so that he can bring him to this place of willing, joyful forgiveness. He is laying groundwork right now that every one of us needs laid in our own hearts and in our own lives. He is subtly reminding him of who he is and therefore what he must do as a result of that. Let's look at these these metaphors briefly together, these specific identity-shaping categories. The first thing we can look at is this, the companionship in our family. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and notice the language he uses here, and Timothy, our brother. Uh, We know that Timothy is the protege of the Apostle Paul. He's a young disciple. He is also a pastor uh, that Paul highly loves and respects. But here he calls Timothy his brother. And then notice what he goes on to do. He says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, he greets now Philemon, and notice who else he greets. Uh, Two more individuals along with the entire church. Now, here's what's important to understand. These two individuals are the wife and child of Philemon. He is identifying Philemon's family, and he is giving a personal greeting towards them. Uh, Aphia, his wife, he calls our sister. And then he says Archibus to his son, our fellow soldier. And notice this, and the church in your house. Now, just a, a real quick side note. Notice this, that this letter is both a personal appeal, and it is something that is to be shared with the entire church. That's important to understand. Paul is communicating in a personal way, but he is communicating something broader, something incredibly important for the church family to see and to understand. He expects that the church will have a front row seat of what Paul is calling Philemon to do. But he identifies a familial relationship here. This is so incredibly intentional. This language is a reminder of the nature of our relationships in the body of Christ. We are a family. We saw this last week. We are the household of God. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We are not to function, in other words, like a bunch of strangers who have no commitment to each other, who have no responsibility to one another. That is the opposite of a family. I mean, if you just think of familial relationships for a minute, aren't they in one sense defined by a a sense of responsibility and of obligation? Isn't it this sense of obligation um, that separates, um, in some ways, a family member from a friend? Family are simply those who are obligated to be in a relationship with you and therefore obligated to respond in certain ways ways. We are bound together whether we like it or not. That's why um, so many of us just expect from our family members things we wouldn't expect of our friends, right? 
I mean, it, it's, it's, it's one thing when a friend shows up to help you do something pretty significant, right? When a friend shows up to help you move or drive you to the airport, you're like, man, you are such a good friend. When a sibling or, or, a, brother, or, or a family member shows up to help you move or drive you, you're like, yeah, you just, you owed it to me. I have people tell me all the time, it's amazing that, there, that your family come to your church. I'm like, well, hold on a second here. It's not that amazing, okay? <laughs> but my response is usually they're family. They have to. They owe it to me. Right? They got it. I'm just kidding. They don't have to. It would be weird if they didn't, but we're bound together, whether we like it or not. That, that's also why we struggle so much to forgive in these close and intimate relationships, isn't it? The deepest hurts in life usually come from those closest in our life. Why? Why is that the case? You think about that? Just, just pause for a moment. Listen, it's because that's where you expect the most. And rightly so. We have these responsibilities. We have these obligations. We're family. And, and so when our expectations are like this and they're not met, it, incre- it just increases the level of hurt we experience in our lives. That's why the, the hurt that comes from the betrayal of adultery is so significant. It's for family. We're committed to each other. We're obligated to each other. We covenanted together. How can we hurt each other like this? Or, or that's why abuse from a family member is so much more significant than somebody outside the family. What? We're obligated to take care of each other. We're obligated to protect each other. Not to harm each other. Not to destroy each other. Not to tear down each other. The hurt is so much deeper when it's from somebody close. That's why the hurt of abandonment from a family member is so painful and so significant. Somebody mentioned to me this week, I was speaking to somebody from this church who, who has been deeply wounded by a family member and, and rightly has distance in, in that relationship now, not because of anything they've done, but because of what this, this family member has done to them. And one of the things that they had been wrestling with and convicted about was, you know, they believed even though they were so deeply hurt by somebody in their own family and so close to them who should have been protecting, who should have been loving, who should have been caring for them, they were so convicted that they had every responsibility and obligation before the Lord to continue to fight for that relationship. I, was, I mean, I, honestly, the stuff that's been done to them is incredibly painful. And I sat back and I listened to this person express their heart. And honestly, I, I was just, I was convicted myself. Like, what, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of family obligation and responsibility. And that's, in a sense, what the Apostle Paul is reminding Philemon of here and what we need to be reminded of in the body of Christ. We are family, and family doesn't give up on family. Amen? Yeah, that was way too quiet. Family doesn't give up on family. Amen? I mean, we are obligated to one another, obligated through thick and thin, through the highs and through the lows, through the hurt and through the joys. We are obligated to each other. We don't cut family off. We press through the hurts and pains because we are family. Does that mean relationships don't change sometimes because of hurts? No, that's, that's, that's not true. Sometimes they do change. Does that mean that there aren't necessary boundaries for protection because of hurt and abuses taking place in families? No, of course not. There, there is. But the point is that families have relational responsibility for and to one another. Paul is subtly, so subtly drawing attention to that, and it's so, so helpful for us to consider that. The second um, area of identity that he um, drives into our hearts is this, the camaraderie in our battle. I love this. I love how he refers to the son of Philemon, uh, Archippus, he says, our fellow soldier. 
I mean, there's great Christian imagery right there. For every one of us, we all understand this, we are called to be soldiers for Jesus Christ. We're called in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God. It is battle imagery. It is soldiering imagery. It is imagery that we need to understand and wholeheartedly embrace. And it is particularly useful when we consider the nature of relationships between soldiers. Notice that Paul says, our fellow soldier. All of us are included in this category. We are all fellow soldiers together. Now, Paul doesn't have to say this. He doesn't have to use this language. Again, he chooses this metaphor carefully to heighten Philemon's and our understanding of our relationships and therefore our responsibilities to them. This idea of being a soldier reminds us, listen, that we are a people who are in the trenches together. We are in a war. We are fighting a common enemy who wants, by the way, to divide our relationships because he loves to divide and conquer. He knows that division and disunity in the body is one of the most effective strategies for overcoming the body of Christ, for hindering the body of Christ. I mean, nothing, you you know this, married couples in here, you know this, nothing, listen, nothing prevents a joy in your relationship with your spouse, listen, like division does. It's fitting that we talk about soldiering on, uh, you know, so close to the 75th anniversary of, of D-Day, isn't it? I have a great deal of respect for soldiers. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm fascinated by war. I read a lot on war just in my kind of leisure reading. I enjoy that. My son right now is reading a little book. It's, it's called I Survived D-Day. And my son's eight, and he's, he's reading this book, and he's just devouring it. He's fascinated by the war. And, um, and, it was, and he comes to me yesterday, and he says, Dad... He's like, this book is amazing. He says, I want to be a soldier. <laughs> you know, part of your heart sinks. Part of your heart's like, well, you know, and I said, I said to my son, son, you know what? That's, that's a really big deal. First of all, you know, um, being a soldier is such an honorable thing. I have the utmost respect for people who want to defend this country, defend who forfeit their lives and who are willing to sacrifice their lives for our freedoms and for the sake uh, of, of us getting to experience the joys of living in the country and the kind of country we do. And, uh, and he's looking at me kind of strangely, and then I realize that he simply wants to be a soldier because he really wants to shoot a gun. <laughs> but there is something unique to being a soldier and to reflecting, listen, there are countless stories of soldiers in battle and the kind of relationships and bonds they form together that are just, honestly, they're fascinating. One author said this, the capacity for self-sacrifice among human beings is nowhere more evident than in the bond between soldiers during war. Some combat veterans have felt that their lives never mattered more than when they were in combat. This sense of meaning and purpose grows out of protecting and being protected by their comrades in arms. A shared commitment to safeguard one another's lives that is non-negotiable and only deepens with time. I I love that description. Non-negotiable. We have each other's backs. I am willing to sacrifice all for you. I mean, this is, is, listen, this is New Testament language for the church. And if we are called to fight with each other and for each other, how can we not see our responsibility to therefore forgive each other? We are brothers and sisters in arms. 
We are in a war together, and our enemy is ferocious. We are forging bonds as we fight together through the biblical means of prayer, through the biblical means of the gospel, through the biblical means of the word of God. We are forging deep and lasting bonds that remind us that it is non-negotiable to fight for each other, with each other, and to forgive each other. It reminds us as well, doesn't it, that this idea of a battle that we're in, we're soldiers together, that there is something much bigger at stake. It's not just about me and you. We get so caught up in our own little world sometimes, we forget that there's a much bigger picture. I mean, we are part of little battles, but there is a giant war that we need to be concerned about. And if we can't win the individual battles, how can we ultimately help win the war? And this leads to this next identity-shaping metaphor, and that's this, the collaboration in our work. He looks at Philemon, and again, knowing that Philemon is a leader in the church, he identifies him as our beloved fellow worker. He's clearly, again, a church leader. He's clearly influential in the life of a church, and therefore, it's incredibly important that Philemon here sets an example for the church family. He's not just a person who's attending the church. He is somebody who's supposed to be leading the church, and therefore it's important that he leads the way in demonstrating what forgiveness looks like in the family of God. It's almost as like Paul saying, hey, Philemon, if you can't do this, how can you expect the rest of the church to follow suit? He is such a, a close and intimate friend that this appeal as a fellow worker is a sweet note from the heart of Paul. He's like, you know, you can come imagine Paul saying, hey, hey, Philemon, we have been working together in the gospel. We are partners in the gospel. I mean, we have linked arms to further the work in the church there together. And we've been in this as a team together, Philemon. I mean, we're so close. I mean, you, you think about this for a second. They're so close in the work of the ministry that Paul's not afraid to invite himself to stay over at his house, okay? He's like, hey, prepare yourself, prepare the guest room. I'm coming to stay with you. Only real friends do that. Only true partners in ministry get the opportunity to do that. But this indicates that Paul is identifying with him as a co-laborer in Christ. And in the body of Christ, we have to remember this, we're all co-laborers in Christ together. We are all working together on a common mission for a common master. Let's make sure that there is nothing that is hindering that work. That's what Paul is saying here. We can't let anything hinder this work, and unforgiveness will hinder the work of the ministry. It will hinder a relational work. It will hinder spiritual work. Reconciliation and forgiveness is crucial for church collaboration. We cannot be united if we are divided by unforgiveness. There are so many in the church, listen, there are so many that I have met with, that I have talked to, who will not see the damage being done to the greater work of the church and the ministry by their bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. And they will not see that so much more can be accomplished together if we simply lay down the arms, lower the walls, and extend forgiveness and grace. You see, our identity, Paul wants to know, shapes our responsibility. If this is who we are, then this is how we must live. We are family members, we are fellow soldiers, and we are fellow workers. We are obligated to build and maintain healthy relationships by having hearts that are ready and willing to forgive. That leads to our second point, which is this. Our community provides our opportunity. 
You say, am I really going to get an opportunity to demonstrate this kind of forgiveness? If you're part of the church, the answer is yes. If you expect to come into the church of Jesus Christ and everything to, be go, to go perfectly in all of your relationships, I mean, you just set the bar somewhere, biblical, somewhere that's not truly biblical. The biblical bar is for the expectation that we're going to hurt one another, but that we deal with it appropriately. And here in verses 4 through 7, Paul is, is giving Philemon some sincere, heartfelt compliments. He is commending him, and he's modeling, and he's reminding him of the opportunities that now exist because of this kind of community that he lives within and that we are trying to cultivate as well. It's been said that there are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. That is absolutely true. And what this boils down to is a community that is ruled by humility and not pride. By love of others and not love of self. Being aware of the opportunities can actually begin to till the soil of your heart. Keeping us in this disposition of being ready to forgive, to extend forgiveness. In this Christian community, we are given a unique opportunities to do a few things that cultivate um, this heart of forgiveness. And I want to go through these one at a time, in, in each verse at a time. The first opportunity that I have to cultivate a heart of forgiveness is this, pray. Pray. Here Paul actually prays for Philemon. Look at what he says. Accordingly, though I am, oh, sorry, that's the wrong verse, uh, verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, just that one verse, verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. It's, it's this sweet picture of how Paul regularly, in an ongoing way, he thinks of Philemon, he recalls his ministry, he recalls their friendship, and he thanks God for him, and he prays for him repeatedly. It's so clear that Paul genuinely loves and appreciates this man. It's so clear that he thinks so highly of this man, but Paul models something so powerful for him here, and he models something so powerful for us as well, and that is this, that when we pray for one another, our love grows for one another. There is no doubt in my mind that Paul was commending him, but that he was also letting him know how his heart has been cultivated to love this man and to respect him and appreciate him so greatly through this simple act of praying regularly for him. You know, when we pray prayers of thanksgiving for one another, we become less inclined to condemn and more inclined to commend. Isn't it amazing how quickly, when we're hurt or when we think of other people, how quickly we are to condemn them, to look at their faults, their failures, the things that frustrate us and annoy us. Even in the most intimate relationships, sometimes we're inclined to do this. Isn't this true? Right, right? Oftentimes, when you haven't been thinking well of the other person or when you haven't been thinking at all of the other person, when you certainly haven't been praying for the other person, all of a sudden, when you think of the person, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's people in your small group, maybe it's your coworkers or your neighbors, you start thinking of them and all of a sudden you're like, oh man, this person drives me crazy. Right, these little things they do, the way they chew just bothers me. <laughs> but you start focusing in, honing in on some of the silliest, most trivial things, and we blow them up in their minds so they become something, listen, that actually hurts and damages the sweetness of our relationship with that individual. But something interesting happens, listen, that when you start praying for somebody, and when you start specifically praying prayers of thanksgiving, 
the things, listen, that frustrate you, the things that you so quickly want to condemn, they begin to fade to the background because God is reorienting your focus. You can't thank the Lord for things that frustrate you, right? Well, I guess you can, but generally speaking, that's not the way it works. It forces you to start thanking God for the good things in the individual, for the things that are commendable, not condemnable. And as you do that, something unique happens in your heart. Just, you don't believe me? Just try this, okay? Try this. Some of you are like, you're like, the place of forgiveness for you is your spouse, okay? You are constantly fighting with one another. There is so much friction in your relationship, and all of your thoughts about your spouse go to what you dislike about them. If that's you, listen, here's, here's a challenge. This is very practical. Here's what you need to do. You need to go home today. You need to get alone with your Bible open to this passage right here, and you need to simple, simply start a list of things you are thankful to God for about your spouse. Some of you are like, well, that's really, really silly. Seems really trivial. Just try it. Try it and tell me how it goes. Start writing that. Or just pick the person that is frustrating you right now in your life. Maybe it's your kid. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a, just do that and just start actually actively thinking about what things there are commendable in that person's life, you know, who they are, a disposition of their heart, an action they constantly or regularly perform, a way in which they serve you without receiving any form of gratitude or thanks. You're like, I can't think of anything. That's your problem then, not theirs. Just, just try this at a very simple level, and then do this. Start praying for those things. Praying and thank God for those things, and watch how God begins to change your heart. Better yet, listen, if it's your spouse in particular, okay, here's what you need to do. Take your spouse out on a date night, you're welcome, and share the list of things you're thankful to the Lord for about them, okay? And make it that, not just I'm thankful for you in this way. I'm thankful to the Lord for you. I'm thankful the Lord has made you like this. I'm thankful God has given you to me. Gratitude, you see, kills bitterness and leads to a heart that is ready to extend forgiveness. Paul prays, and he's simply thankful for Philemon and for Philemon's heart and for Philemon's example, for Philemon's godliness, for Philemon's influence and usefulness. And he just pours out commendation for this man and there's no doubt that what he's trying to do is soften Philemon's heart to prepare him to do what he's going to ask him to do. And notice that here's what ultimately um, he's given the opportunity to do, to display. See, I have the opportunity to display, to display something really unique and powerful when I'm cultivating this heart of forgiveness. You see, our community provides an incredible opportunity to display a two things in particular. There are two things that are mentioned in verse 5, our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love toward all the saints. Here he says this, that he has heard of these two things being present in Philemon's life. Again, he's commending what is already recognizably true in this man's life. He's heard this. I mean, word has traveled Philemon has a reputation for being a man who has an incredible faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and displays an incredible love for the family of God. Word has gotten back to Paul. I mean, can you just pause and think about that? What a phenomenal reputation to have, isn't it? I mean, could you, if that's all that would be put on your tombstone, that would be phenomenal. He had tremendous faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he loved the church of Jesus Christ. 
What a beautiful commendation. You say, why is Paul commending him about this? He is telling him this because Philemon has already displayed the power of God at work in him through how he's living this out in the context of the church. And he's about to say, you're going to have another sweet opportunity to do the same thing. Don't miss the opportunity. Don't miss that your opportunity to extend forgiveness to people is a powerful opportunity to display the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, um, this is, in one sense, the great commandment in Pauline fashion, the great commandment of loving God and loving others. Jesus made it clear that the world will know that we are His disciples by how we love one another don't remove this idea of extending forgiveness from this broader concept of showing love in our fellowship together. The church is like an arena where we get to display to one another and to the world the power of our God. Our actions clearly display our love for Jesus and His church, and our lack of action um, in certain ways demonstrates our lack of faith in Jesus and our lack of love for the church of Jesus Christ. Here, he's again saying to Philemon, you're about to have an incredible opportunity to display this faith in this love. And by the way, this love is the basis for his appeal to Philemon. And it's helpful to know, too, that faith is the basis for our love. It's our faith in Jesus that allows us to love one another. Paul says it like this in Galatians 5, 6. He says this, um, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Ephesians 3.17 says that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. In other words, you want to see how much faith you have in Jesus Christ? See how much love you have for other people. You want to see how much love you have for other people? See how quickly you're willing to forgive them. We can only display our faith and love in as much as we are willing to do this third thing, obey. If you haven't caught it by now, yes, they all rhyme, okay? And so will the fourth one. We get to pray, we get to display, but we only get to display in as much as we obey. Okay, that was cheesy, but it works. It is our obedience, ultimately, that puts on a display of our faith. That's what the phrase in verse 6 is actually getting at here. He says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, what, is, what does he mean by the sharing of your faith? Is, is, this, is this Paul saying, I hope that you become a better evangelist? No, that's not the context. That's not what he's talking about. Although, let me be the first to say, every one of us needs to become better at sharing our faith. Amen? But that's not the point here. The point that he is making is this, you are having a, you're getting a unique opportunity to display your faith, to share your faith in how you respond to this great opportunity to extend forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
really, in one sense, um, this is a display not only to the church, but to Philemon himself. And here's, here's where this needs to connect with you. Listen, it's one thing to intellectually believe something, right? Every one of us in here, for a follower of Jesus Christ, you'd say something like this, I know I'm supposed to forgive people. I understand the call, I understand the command. Listen, but the full knowledge of that requires not just an intellectual assent to that idea, but actually a practical application of that idea. It is a call to connect the head and the heart, the intellectual and the experiential. And in a sense, he's saying, listen, you wanna know, you wanna know how much you're going to experience the full knowledge of this in your life, finally, man, the full knowledge of what you're supposed to do is by actually doing it. Paul is saying that this opportunity to forgive and to reconcile has the potential to be this powerful and effective tool in Philemon's own life, but also in the life of the church. It will display the gospel. I mean, look, your faith is made visible by your works. That's a biblical reality. How you behave displays what you believe. Obedience is one of the greatest apologetics we have for our faith. Hypocrisy is one of the greatest deterrents to displaying our faith. Every one of us should be saying, look at my life, look at my life. How do, how do I know that you're a follower of Jesus? How do I know that your faith has changed you? Look at my life, look at my life, look at my life. We need to learn to do every good thing. That's another way of saying to obey God's will, to obey every word of God believing that it will lead to the greatest of all things, glory to Jesus Christ. For the sake of Christ, he says, don't you understand? This is all about obedience to the glory of Jesus Christ. A heart that is trained to obey will be a heart that is ready to forgive. By the way, this is just true in in every regard. A heart that is constantly seeking to obey, constantly seeking to bring glory to God through our obedience will be, by nature, a heart that is ready and willing to forgive. It's already conditioned to do this. It's conditioning itself habitually to say, God, your will, not my will. Your way, not my way. Your glory, not my glory. The goal of everything we do as a believer should be to the glory of Christ for his sake. Finally, that leads to this final way that we have an opportunity to cultivate and to till a heart that is ready to forgive, and that is this, to convey. Paul already mentions that the obedience of Philemon has led to a result in Paul's own life and to a blessing and benefit to the church. He says in verse seven, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. To convey something is to be a channel that brings about something, a conduit of something. Our obedience affects us. It makes us a conduit of God's blessing in one sense, but it makes us a conduit of God's blessing towards others who get to participate in it, who get to watch it and see it. Paul Paul says, listen, Philemon, your obedience to the Lord, your willingness to, to love me and to love the church and to love God, I mean, it has brought me so much comfort and joy, and so much of that comfort and joy has been just derived from watching you be a refreshment to the church, serving the church, loving them so sacrificially, so graciously. We provide much encouragement and refreshment to one another. 
Obedience does this. Forgiveness does this. Nothing kills the spiritual life faster than the pride that's found in the form of unforgiveness. It's like drinking poison hoping the other person will die. And you see, instead, not only do you have the opportunity to convey joy, comfort, and love, and refreshment to others through forgiveness, but you have the joy to experience it yourself as you forgive. So many people, listen, so many people unable to live the Christian life, unable to derive any joy and comfort in their Christian life. Here's why. Listen, here's why. They will not obey this simple command to forgive. That's it. Like, is it really that simple? Yes, it's really that simple. Bitterness, anger, resentment, holding on to wounds. Some of you need, listen, you need to hear this because you have been living in hurt. You have been living in unforgiveness and you've been putting the blame solely on the other person where God is wanting you today, listen, to come back to this reality. You are not responsible for how that other person hurt you. You're responsible for how you respond to it. And you need to respond with this attitude of forgiveness. You are not hurting anybody but yourself. You are choking the life, spiritually speaking, out of yourself. And God says the answer is this, forgiveness. Forgiveness. You say, how do I do this? I get that this is supposed to prove my heart, but how do I ultimately do this? This leads to our final point, and it's really quick, more of a conclusion and a bridge into our time of the Lord's Supper. It's this, our unity provides our ability. Some of you may have noticed that I skipped over verse 3. And for many of us, this is simply a customary greeting that's tacked onto every letter of the Apostle Paul, but it's much more than that. Paul says, grace to you, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not some kind of a perfunctory statement that Paul makes at the beginning of his letters, you know, just a, a throwaway statement. For Paul, listen, you have to hear this, for Paul, this is everything. For Paul, this statement forms the basis for every single one of his letters. There is no writing to a church. There is no writing to sanctify, to encourage, to build up, apart from this statement right here, grace and peace from God through Jesus Christ. You say, I just, I just can't forgive, Ian. I can't forgive. You don't know how much I've been hurt. You don't know what's been done to me. You don't know the pain. You don't know the suffering. And to that, I would simply say, listen, with deep compassion in my heart, for some of you who've gone through some really significant things, I, I know I can't. I cannot relate to you um, in that way maybe, and I, I, can't I can't empathize with you. I can sympathize because I've been hurt too. But listen, I'm not trying to take away your pain. I'm just trying to take away you living in that pain. See, I'm just not ready to forgive. Or, or maybe some of you are legitimately at this place where you're saying, how? how? Like, how is it possible that I forgive these great offenses that have been done to me? Here's how. The answer is found in this one verse, and it's really simple. We can boil it down to this. Just look to the cross. Look to the gospel. That's what Paul is drawing attention here to. He's drawing attention to, I mean, the, the unifying feature of the Christian life, the, the unifying feature of the church of Jesus Christ. We are united together because we are united in him, and that has only happened through what he's accomplished at the cross. 
Grace has been given to you. What does that mean exactly? I mean, this is all about the cross, okay? This is all about God's love and God's kindness for you. What is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. In other words, it reminds us, this this one statement is jam-packed with theology, it reminds us that you and I don't deserve forgiveness. Do you realize that? We don't deserve the kindness of God. We can't earn it. We can't require it of God. We can't demand it of God. It is a gift that's given. Why? Why? Because we have grievously offended God. Listen, what we deserve from God is not kindness and grace and forgiveness. It's wrath and judgment. By the way, that's the opposite of forgiveness. You know that? It's wrath and judgment. But grace has been given to us. And you see, we look to the cross first and foremost as our example. It is our example. Here we see that we deserved wrath and judgment. We deserved God to unleash his wrath against us. By the way, this is a a common theme throughout the entire scripture. Humanity deserves God's wrath. We have offended, we have rejected, and we have rebelled against the living God who created us to know and to love him. We have stuck our middle finger in his face. We have shaken our fist in his face. We have declared, I don't love you. I don't care about you. I won't live for you. I will be king. And we deserve God's justice. This is why grace is so significant in the Christian life. It is not just an example to follow. It is a reminder of what's actually been done for us in reality. Christ is not just a good example. He is the reason we are here and able to worship. He is the reason we are able to forgive. Because he has so graciously forgiven us. And he provides our ability to do this. We look to the cross and we see what we deserve. We see that not only do we have grace with God, we have peace with God. And by the way, this isn't just momentary at salvation. This is in an ongoing way. As we continue to sin, God continues to lavish us with grace. We were given peace at the cross. God, Colossians says, made peace by the blood of his son. We were at enmity. We were at war, warring against God. We were rebels. We were enemies of his. We were fighting him. And instead of reconciling with God on our own terms, God came and reconciled us to him through the cross. He made peace. And now we live not in fear of God's judgment, but in the reality of knowing the peace of forgiveness. And for some of you today, you've walked in here, you don't know Jesus Christ, and you need to understand this is the heart of the gospel message. God is offering to you grace and peace this morning. And he's saying, you can come and receive all of that in the cross. You say, how do I I receive that forgiveness? Because that's the forgiveness you desperately need to consider this morning, first and foremost. By grace through faith. Lay down your weapons against God. Bow the knee before him as king. Embrace that he came to forgive you. Embrace that he stood in your place. He absorbed the full weight of God's wrath in your place. He rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. And now he extends to you forgiveness, grace, and peace. And this is ultimately what makes us ready to forgive. We constantly go back to this truth and we see the example of God and what he accomplished for us. And it pulls us into this place where we see if this God has done this for me, and I have sinned against him in so much more grievous ways, how can I then not do this for others? But it gets better than simply God being our example and our reality. You see, Christ is also our empowerment. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God gives us supernatural empowerment through the cross. He has not only worked on our behalf to bring restoration and forgiveness, He has given us um, power and ability by the presence of His Spirit among us to actually enact what He calls us to do, to obey the commands of Scripture. Um, We can do it because Christ lives in us. You can't. Let's be very clear on something right now. You can't, in the truest biblical sense, you cannot uh, forgive others. You cannot be freed from bitterness and anger, not truly, not finally, not ultimately before a living God. Uh, You can't heal yourself from past hurt. You can't help, uh, you can't, excuse me, forgive others um, on your own. You desperately need the work of the Spirit of God within you to do in you what you cannot do on your own. For some of you, this is the issue of your life. You have been confronted with this this morning. You've been confronted with this time and time again. You're living in woundedness and in bitterness and resentment and in unforgiveness. And God is calling you today to lay down the arms. He's calling you today to crawl, crawl in humility to the cross. Lay down your pride. Fall on your face. The most important thing you can do as a Christian today may simply be to go before God right now and ask for help to do this. And God is waiting to unlock, listen, a comfort, a joy, a peace, and a refreshment for your soul that cannot be experienced any other way. 